that you would just bless our time together. And Lord, uh, we just thank you for those who are willing to go out, like we see with Annie. And, and we do pray for uh, Bob and Bobby, Lord. I know this is two daughters out there in the big old world, Father. We just pray your grace upon them and your mercy upon them. But Father, Lord, we ask you to touch us during this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking there over the next couple of weeks in the same chapter. But today I want to use it as an intro as we jump into this new series we are calling Promise Kept. And today we're looking at the assurance of salvation. Now, uh, what if I were to tell you that you could leave here today knowing for certain that your sins could be forgiven? knowing for certain that there would be no past that would be held against you, and also that your future could be secure and assured in heaven. I think many of us, <clears throat> when we think of salvation, we think of maybe when we were a child and we made a decision to follow Christ, or maybe uh, it's one of those things where we were at summer camp or whatever it may mean. But the point is, when we begin to look at salvation through the lens of what God has provided through Jesus Christ, we will find the most awesome promise kept ever. And that is the whole idea that surrounds what salvation is all about. Think about it. Our sins forgiven. Our past no longer held against us. And also the assurance of heaven. Now think about that. So this morning, if you look at the introduction, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one's only hope and the only event in history that guarantees and assures salvation. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I actually want to go ahead and look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Basically, Paul is, is writing to this church, and he's basically saying this gospel, of course, the gospel we know, we're getting ready to find out actually here in these, in these next verses, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And basically, he says, in that, you've received that, but not only have you received it, you stand in it. And that's the whole idea of assurance, that we stand in what God has provided, by which also you're saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, this is the gospel, and that he was buried and that he arose on the third day according to the scriptures. Now skip down to verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. He's basically saying if this event did not take place, then it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. But the good news is right after verse 4 of what we just read, he begins to give all this evidence of the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. There's people who saw him after his brutal crucifixion and, and, and the assurance of, of the fact that they knew he was walking around amongst them. Think about it. 500 people at one time saw him. I mean, you look at the list. 
He's basically saying this is an event that we can count on. This is an event that we can be assured of. But he's saying, but let me just tell you this, every bit of it hinges on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. And then he says in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your past has not been forgiven. That your past can still be held against you and there is no assurance of heaven. So basically Paul is saying everything that is, when it comes to this whole idea that we're all counting on, when it comes to this salvation that we've not only received but we're assured of because we stand in it, it says it all hinges on the resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. Our only hope of salvation rests in the resurrection. Now where does that leave us today? What does that leave us as individuals? I want you to think about it. These are the groups of people that are here today. You represent one of these categories. Those who are not saved and know they're not saved. You have no assurance of salvation. Maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're kind of drug here, or maybe you made a promise that you would come here today, but there's really nothing that you really want to receive here today is maybe, maybe you're living in rebellion. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you have no intention of embracing the salvation that we're talking about here today. Well, you have no assurance of what we just said. Maybe the second group, those who are not saved but think they are saved. They have, you may have a false sense of assurance. You, you think you are, but you're really not. And for some of you, that may be where some of you are. Maybe you're there, and it's like you don't really understand the whole means of salvation. You're not quite there yet. And then there's this third group, those who are saved but are uncertain if they're saved. Maybe you showed up here today, and, and maybe you have doubts about salvation. Maybe you have doubts of whether you're really a part of what God offers through Jesus Christ. You're just kind of unsure. And then there are those who are saved and sure they are saved, but believe they can lose their salvation. And possibly for you, there's no assurance because you believe at some point Christ could write you off. Maybe at some point you could cross a certain line and all of a sudden there would be no salvation for you. And then fifthly, those who know they are saved and know it is eternal. And you have assurance there's some of you who I know that's your case because I've had a privilege to talk to you about your faith, to hear about the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ through the salvation in which we talk about today. And you know that. And for many of you, you look at that and you say, well, how can a person really know? Well, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know there's a certainty that can come with our salvation. So my question for you is, which of these five are you this morning? You look at the outline there, which one would you say? Maybe you want to put a check beside the one that you, you, you are. And, and, and as a result of all that, what I want to do with this sermon today is I want to help all five groups of you. I want to try to give you a biblical view of what salvation is all about. I want to try to bring that assurance that I think we all desperately desire when it comes to salvation. And then for those of you who are assured of your salvation, I want to affirm you in what you believe about that salvation. Now think about the phrase as we start. 
that you may know that you have eternal life. It doesn't say that you may hope, that you may wish, that you may hope to achieve, that you could work to an end of salvation. It doesn't say any of that. But that you may know, be assured of, be confident that you have eternal life. You can know that. So since we know this verse says we can know for certain we have eternal life, then why do so many of us doubt our salvation? Why is it that we're sitting here today and we don't feel so assured about it? Well, here are some reasons why people would doubt their salvation. Number one is a given, the whole idea of sin. Sin brings misery to a follower of Jesus. It just does. We, we, we can never be settled in sin. We who are, uh, consider ourselves follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, there will be a certain index of misery in our life if we allow sin in and we allow it to be fostered within us. It brings a sense of misery. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've said this many times, but uh, the most miserable people to be around are followers of Jesus Christ who are not in fellowship with God himself. Those who know what the peace of God can bring into their life, they know what the joy can be, they, they have the full uh, joy of their salvation, and all of a sudden they step outside of that, they're not in fellowship anymore, they begin to have doubts. Those people that I've been around, they're pretty miserable people. Many of you would say, yeah, I've been there before. King David was no stranger to this. King David was one of those. And, and what's unique about King David is we can read about his stories in, in, in 2 Samuel and in, in the, the, one of the books of Kings. And, and we can look at his story and we can see how his life plays out. But the great thing about King David is two-thirds of the Psalms were written by him. And we not only see how his life plays out, we get to see his heart and what he dealt with as his life played out. He's one of the only characters in Scripture that we get that privilege with. And so King David, you remember his story, his sin with Bathsheba. And, we, and, and what's interesting about his sin with Bathsheba, David at the moment, he began to dabble into this sin, this infidelity and, and this adultery. What's interesting is the people around him, when you start to read the account, we're fearful, we're scared of David. That's something they probably had never felt before. But this was someone who had a relationship with God and he knew how rich it was to be and, and had that fellowship with God until it was no longer there. He was out of fellowship with God and he was miserable. In Psalms 51, we read about the anguish of David's heart after his sin. Psalm 51, look at it here on the screen. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies. Now, I want you to understand, why can he write this? Because the first part of this verse, this passage here, he's writing about what used to be true of his own life. He, he writes about what it means to be forgiven and that joy he's writing from that because he's experienced that before. And then he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, something I've experienced and know full well of, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. And here's the key. And my sin is always before me. Everywhere I turn. It's haunting me. It's tracking me down. It's right there. It's forever in my presence. 
and I can't get away from it. As real as God was once in his life, now sin is that real in his life. Can you imagine the contradiction in which he was feeling? I mean, we can read some Psalms and David's writing to the glories of God and he's celebrating his relationship with God and it's all right there. It's in full view. We can, we can identify with some of the things he writes and it's like, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about, David. We've been there, buddy. But you know, there's other times when we can relate to Psalm 51 and we're out of fellowship and that's what's always before us. David is miserable and haunted by his sin. There's something here that's just not right. Secondly, sin also brings isolation to a follower of Jesus. When a follower of Jesus sins, he or she will not be comfortable in that sin. And by the way, that is a good sign. That's a good sign. The non-follower of Jesus will not have the awareness conviction. They won't be aware of the break of fellowship with the one who created them or the one who can bring that salvation. Nor do they have the awareness of isolation from God in his or her life. Once again, David cries out in Psalms 51. Look what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast vision, uh, spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, listen to this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David, when he writes this, is feeling that disconnection. He's feeling, he's not so assured of anything anymore in his life. The only thing he knows is this sin is haunting him. And he's just begging God. That's the language we hear here. It's important to note and this is, this is really key when it comes to salvation. It's important to note that this is a prayer that he's praying because out of the desperation he's praying here tells us he knows what it's like to be in fellowship with God himself. No one could write this who had not already been in fellowship with God, who knew what salvation's joy felt like. And all of a sudden, he's sitting here, and he's basically saying, I long for what I once had. If he didn't have it in the first place, he never would have known to long for it, beg for it, and be desperate for it. You see, I'm convinced there's a lot of people here today that the reason you're doubting your salvation it's because somewhere along the line, you've allowed some sin into your life. And, and, and I don't know for whatever reason, maybe, maybe you're living under the guilt and shame of that sin. When, when simply put, the, the Bible says that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit came, or God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into your life, to restore that fellowship. But for some, whatever reason, you're not enjoying the, the conviction of sin and, and, and moving back into relationship with God. You're still sitting there in the guilt and the shame of it all. And you were never intended to live there because he's provided a way. He's provided a way. Another reason a person doubts their salvation is overemphasis on emotions and feelings. You see, the problem is that so many professing Christians rely too much on their emotions, too much on their feelings. And basically, I'll be honest with you, we live in a society that feelings and emotions dictate everything, dictate truth now. 
But yet the Bible says we can't trust those things. How many of you have learned that you can't really trust your emotions and feelings? You ever been there? But yet we're building whole systems of philosophy and thought and truth based on feelings and emotions. And that's not good. And the thing here is our salvation is a result, listen, is a result of faith. It comes by way of faith, not feelings. And it's interesting that because if we put so much emphasis on emotions and feelings, the result when heartache or setbacks come in our lives, our faith will be threatened. There will be a disconnect there. You see, our salvation is, not built on, is built on faith, not feelings. How do we know this? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us a clue. Look here on the screen. It says this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not necessarily seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And here's the key. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He who moves towards God, he who has a heart for God, you just believe he is for who he is. And he is a rewarder of those, and here's the key, who diligently seek him. Diligently. How do you diligently seek God? In the context that's written here, you diligently seek him through faith. And what does that mean? Just a simple trust in him. Trusting in him. Not based on emotions. Not based on feelings. Faith is what our faith, trust in him must be. A third reason why a person doubts their salvation is just the failure to take God at his word. I want you to quickly turn to Romans chapter 8. We're, we're done here in 1 uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 15. We'll come back to it uh, in, in the weeks ahead. But Romans chapter 8 is very important for our, us to get our minds around what's written here. Paul was writing probably some of the greatest doctrine on salvation anywhere is what we find in the book of Romans. If you were to say, okay, give me the greatest description, the best doctrine, the best theology on salvation, where will I find that? You'll find it in the book of Romans. And right here in the heart of what we find associated with salvation, we find this written in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let me just say this. The only way God's going to be for you is through the provision Jesus made for you through your salvation. The Bible says that. The only guarantee you have any way, any relationship, anything that God's going to have anything to do with you comes by way of salvation provided by Jesus Christ. Okay? So, so that's a given here. So if that's the case, he who did not spare, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Boy, that's comforting, isn't it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I want you to think about this. 
The love of Christ, what does that entail? It entails what he's said before, that we were in our, in our sins. Christ died for the ungodly. When we were helpless, there was nothing we could do about it. The love of Christ was compelled in such a way that it reached out to us. And as a result, who can bring charge against us? Who, who can interfere with what God has already employed and deployed into our lives? Who, who can do that? He's bringing the case. It was a love of God that reached out. And he goes on. Who shall separate us from that love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or a sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, that, that was our condition. That, that's where we were headed. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that God has for us was sealed by what Christ did on the cross. And the fact that he was raised from the dead guarantees us because we've received him, because we've entered into a covenant relationship with him through salvation, nothing can separate us from God's love. We are an object of God's love. Now, let me tell you this. There's only two groups of people, really, when you think about it, they're here today. There's only two groups of people in the whole world today. And here they are. Those who are an object of God's love and those who are an object of God's wrath. Did you know that? That's the only two categories in the world today. And today, if you, right now, if, you, if you're sitting there and you've never come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior through the salvation Jesus provides for us, guess what? You're an object of God's wrath. But guess what? It's still not too late. You can become an object of God's love. Every one of us in this room at one point in our lives was an object of God's wrath. But now we can be an object of his love. And many of us in this room have that testimony. Another reason why a person doubts their salvation, one word, Satan. Satan. In the Bible, Satan is called the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, here on the screen, it says this. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God night and day has been cast down. Now let me just tell you this. That is something that has been foretold. But guess what, guess what the enemy is doing right now? He's accusing us. He, he's rubbing it in when we fail. And, and guess what? That's what a lot of you are experiencing right now, possibly. If you're doubting your salvation and have no assurance, guess what? He's going to see to it. I mean, first of all, think about what the enemy does. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy something in our lives. We know that. Jesus said that himself. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he, he, he's going to come by way, and, and he's going to tempt us. How many of you were tempted this week at any point? Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, well, we'll go with that. <laughs> I saw some late hands. Thank you for your humor me. But the point is, here, here's the point. The point is, he gets us, he tempts us, we, he closes the deal because we act on that temptation, we sin, and then he turns the tables on us and says, look at you. Will someone who's a truly follower of Jesus do this? 
where they do that. Look at you. Look at how you're acting. I told the college students, I had the privilege to teach them over the last three weeks in the Connect group. And I told them, and many of you have already heard me say this many times, I'm convinced if God basically ever sat Satan down and said, okay, you're doing a whole lot more damage than I ever thought you were capable of. By the way, that conversation would never happen because God knows everything. I'm just, you, stay with me, okay? But anyway, and he says, I'm going to limit you to two things. Two things. I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt, the enemy would use fear and doubt. He'd say, just give me fear and doubt, and I can do just as much damage. And I think he could. And I'm basing that just on my life. And the lives of those that God's given me a privilege to walk beside and counseling and talking and just knowing the Christian community. Man, he is so destructive with those two things, isn't he? And doubt, boy, if you're a Christian, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've lived my my faith boldly and I've lived my faith unapologetically. And then there's been times where not so true. And I'm telling you, the whole seed of it was doubt. Doubt entered in. And I'm convinced of that. And the enemy is good at bringing it about. Another reason why a person doubts their salvation is just false teaching. False teaching. So where's the misunderstanding? Well, I've I've come to see that it happens in one of three areas. The first one is the wrong view of salvation. They just, they don't get really what salvation is. So I want to ask you to turn to this one last place, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Wrong view of salvation. If a person does not know or understand what it means to be saved, they will always doubt their salvation experience. You think that's true? Logic would tell you that's true. You cannot be assured of anything you do not understand. Now, let me just tell you this. There's a lot of mystery that surrounds our salvation. How many of you agree with that? But there's some basic understanding the Bible gives us about our salvation that that we can't chalk it up as mystery because it's just right here in the pages of God's Word. It's very clear what it is. And, And so... That's the reason I think that that we've got to be, uh, as a church, we've got to be good with our discipleship. People need to understand the the decision that they make for Christ. That's one thing I'm so proud of Corby for doing over these years as he's uh, moved in and getting into the lives of children is basically, he he basically disciples kids before their baptism. If the parents basically are saying, hey, they're asking a lot of questions about salvation, Corby will spend, uh, I think it's five to six weeks with those children in a small group and begins to pour into them what salvation means and what it's all about. There's probably a lot of us adults that probably could be in that room with them, couldn't we? And it just pours into them. And and so they have the ground basis of what salvation is really all about. Now, here's what we've got to understand. When it comes to understanding salvation, we've got to understand our sin first. Okay? Our basic problem with sin, listen to this, is not necessarily our actions or our behavior, but our condition. Our condition is the problem when it comes to sin. The behavior and actions are just the course that runs with our condition. The condition is the root cause. And so when someone basically says that their whole idea of salvation is geared around doing better, what they're trying to address are their behaviors and their actions, right? They're looking at that. The Bible says it's not that. It's the condition we are in. 
It's a condition. I can prove that to you. So look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1. And you, he made alive. Now, he's talking about those who, who are believers now. You, he made alive. What does that imply? You were dead at one time. Now you're alive. That's your salvation. If you're going to say, okay, give me a simple way of looking at my salvation. Spiritually, you were dead at some point. Now you're alive. Now you're spiritually alive. Before, however, you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 2 tells us the root causes of where we are. It talks about our condition. It basically says our condition is we were left to the, to the peril of what the world brought to us, what the enemies brought to us, and what resides in our own hearts and in our flesh. That is our condition. We're at the peril of all these things, and it's tossing us back and forth, and it's our condition. The fact we act the way we do sometimes and our behavior being sinful is because of our condition. But so many people, when it comes to salvation, want to deal with those things and never really get to the condition. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead to bring salvation to us, listen, he went to the core of where we are. He went to the core of the problem, the condition. Here it is. You were born in sinner. I mean, excuse me. You were born in sin. And when you sinned, that proved it. For some of you, I don't know when. It, I, I see it mostly in two-year-olds. I'm sure you do too. I mean, little sinners, we know it. I mean, I mean, it's just amazing what a two-year-old. How, And you know something I'm starting to notice and I think Jonathan reminds us this a couple of weeks ago. I'm starting to notice that not many of us get past being two. <laughs> I mean, have you noticed that? You ever, you ever seen an adult lose it? It's no different than my youngest grandson. I, sometimes I think he handles it better sometimes. At least that's what my wife says about me. But anyway... Um, <laughs> But it is, it gets back to the condition. The actions and behaviors of sin, listen, are a symptom of a person's condition. Romans 5 says that we are helpless before we're saved and that we could not change our condition, but only God can. So here's the definition of salvation. It is the deliverance from the bondage of sin and eternal death and the possession of eternal life. We move from death to life. How does that happen? He gets to the condition, the condition. Now, when you begin to think about salvation, our response to salvation begins with repentance. You know, you know where repentance, you know what it's really addressing? Our condition. So many times we sit there and we say, okay, repentance. What is repentance? Moving from our sin and moving to God. Moving through Jesus Christ. We're leaving this behind and we're moving in this direction. It's a change of direction. That's exactly what repentance is. But it's more of this, and it really carries more of the way of this, crucifying the old condition and embracing what's made available. It's a crucifixion of the condition. It's no longer me wanting to be dictated by my condition, by my condition. Now, I'm not one of those pastors that say, oh, well, listen, it, it, I'm, I'm not one that causes sin diseases, okay? Now, can, can, can sin be at the core of a disease? Yes, it, it can. But it all comes back to sin, the fallen condition. It all goes back to that. 
And that's the problem. Next, another false teaching that surrounds all this is the wrong view of the cross. What did the cross really provide? Verse 4. Here's our favorite two words in God's word. I've heard many of you say it, but God. Think about it. He's just described the complexity of our condition, the failures of our condition, where we were spiritually dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, our condition, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places where? In Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us again. Where is it located? In Christ Jesus. The phrase in Christ Jesus all goes back to his provision. Everything, everything, our, the way we embrace Christ, the way we come to Christ is recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection and how that relates to us. It gives the power that that condition can be taken care of. Therefore, here's the key. Therefore, Christ's death on the cross, listen, paid our sin debt, provided forgiveness for our sins, and most importantly, changed our condition before God. It not only changed our condition, it changed our condition before God. Now when God looks at us, listen, he doesn't see that dead condition anymore. He sees the life that Christ has pumped into us now. A new life, a new, a new righteousness. And we could talk more about that. So, if your salvation hinges on anything but the finished work of Jesus on the cross that is guaranteed by his resurrection, then you will always doubt your salvation. You'll always doubt it. You'll always wonder. Lastly, another false teaching is the wrong view of eternal security. Eternal security. Now listen, there's a lot of you out there, and even I cringe when, I, when, when someone says this. You probably know what I'm about to say. Once saved, always saved. I cringe when I say that. Because that right there can be very, um, you need to at least inspect that phrase in your own life. Because that is a dangerous phrase in many ways. But let me give you a definition of eternal security. It is that work of Jesus which guarantees God's gift of salvation. Once received, is possessed forever and cannot be lost. That is something that I am most assured of. Let me give you some things. The first phrase that we find in this definition is once received. Can, can I tell you what that looks like? It's what I would call life-changing repentance. It's something that, that, that changes the core of who you are. And I've seen life-changing repentance in people. How many of you have ever witnessed it before? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's miraculous. It's something. I, I, I've seen it play out where, where wives come to me and say they, they have a whole different husband. They're not the same person. That is life-changing repentance. To me, if you were to say, what's the greatest sign that you see? Life-changing repentance is the greatest sign of salvation. The Bible talks about it. 
The next phrase we find in this definition is God's gift. God's gift is eternal life. And there's nothing we do to earn it. And there's nothing that we do to lose it. <laughs> Let me give you some words here. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been what? Saved. How did it come about? Through? And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And it's so funny that many times we end right there on verse 9. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a whole new thing he's doing in our lives. There's a whole new thing. He's implying, verse 10 implies we're not the same person we once were. There's more potential. There's more great. There's so much more that God can do in and through us. So the question is this, what are you trusting in for salvation? Repentance is a reaction that my condition as it relates to God and my sin has been changed. It's not a change of perfection. How many of you can testify to that? It's not a change of perfection, but it's definitely a change of perspective. And it's a change of how we view ourselves and how we view God and how we view ourselves in the context of God. Next, evidence of salvation. In a nutshell, we're a different person. If you say, give me the greatest evidence of salvation, we're a new person. We're a different person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Listen to it real carefully. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you remember what I told you what in Christ means? Death, burial, and resurrection. We've, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it's evident in our lives. We've seen it, okay? It says, if that is the case, that person is a new creation. Some of your translations say a new creature. Now, how many of you like to be called a creature? You're a new creature. But you know something? We're a new creation. You know what that implies? Something that's never existed before. Did you know when God began to speak the world into existence, he said it was out of nothing and it became something? Did you know our salvation is very similar Based on the context of what we read here in this verse, a new creature, he spoke something into existence. We received that free gift of God. The repentance came, and he speaks that into us. And he says this, old things have passed away, all the old perspective, all the sin that held us in bondage. Behold, he's basically saying, listen up. All things have become new. So if you were to ask me, Give me some evidence of salvation. This is what I find. First of all, life-changing belief in the gospel. So many times we hear people say, oh, just believe, just believe. That's partly true. But let me ask you a question. Did that belief change your life? Did it change your life? I mean, I look at some things in life and I believe them. But it sure hadn't changed a whole lot of me. Most of the things I believe hadn't changed me. But this belief, when really believed, changes your life. Number two, longing for the things of God. When you're not in fellowship, you long to be there. When you're in fellowship, you long to stay there. But again, it doesn't speak of perfection. Number three, conviction of sin. I, I, I'm just going to tell you, some of the greatest assurances I have of, of the fact that Christ has changed my life is conviction. 
How many of you, when you do something wrong? Conviction. And then next, discipline by God. Let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever been disciplined by God? Has he ever had to get in your face, as we say? Has he ever had to shake you to your core? That's God. Loves you too much to keep you where you are. I want to ask you right now, if you'll just bow your heads, maybe even put that outline right there in front of you if you filled it, out, filled it out. So here's where I want to leave this this morning. Have you received the salvation that Jesus provides? Are you assured of it? Which one of these five are you? Those who are not saved and know you're not saved? But maybe God's done something in your life in these moments. Maybe there's a whole new awareness of this whole idea of salvation that's awakened you. Would you like to be sure? I want to invite you to, I'll be over here, I'll, I'll, actually I'll be in the back over here if you want to talk with me about that. I'd love to talk to you about that. Greatest decision you ever made, the greatest privilege I'll ever have is leading someone to Christ. Number two, those who are not saved but think they are saved. Would you like to have the assurance? Next, those who are saved but are uncertain if they're saved. Again, would you like the assurance? Those who are saved and sure they are saved but believe they can lose their salvation. Let me just say this. That's just a matter of doctrine that right there is at the core of that one. And then those who are saved and know it's eternal. Would your heads bow and your eyes closed? How many of you in this room are assured of your salvation? You know you're saved and you're assured of it. Would you raise your hand? Amen. That's a lot of us in this room. Amen. So here it is. Would you like to be certain? Pray with me. Father, we just come to you right now. And we just thank you for your many blessings. And, and Lord, we've done nothing to deserve the love that you have for us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the provision of salvation, Father. We thank you that he didn't just go to a cross where he was brutally beaten and uh, eventually died. Uh, but Father, there was more to the story that he arose on the third day. And that brings all the guarantees. That brings all the assurances of the salvation that we're trusting in. We thank you for that. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know for sure, I pray before they leave this room that they'll talk to someone, that they will begin to have that assurance and what you so freely give us, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?